Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Ben from Woking, and you're listening to the Dame Baptiste Questions Everything podcast. My question is, you've just formed the supergroup of your dreams. Who are you picking to be frontman or woman? Okay, here comes the show. And remember, question everything. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast where myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor, Dame Baptiste, my producer friend, Howard Cohen, a.k.a. Dehiza, Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked. And we're talking everything from... We are talking everything from Ben from Woking's question, who would be the front man or front woman of your dream supergroup? Dane, where do you stand on this tough question? I've thought about it long and hard before, just so you know. It was a tough question. Um, great question, Ben. Yeah, but Ben didn't specify uh, persons living or dead. And so, uh, for me, I would say the front man of my band, which I call the Dead Poet Society, would be Michael Jackson. A, because I feel like tickets will sell immediately and you have to think about show and business. Plus, he has experience in being in the group. And I feel those are the main things. But keep it in mind, I have to give everyone context. This is the group that also consists of other amazing posthumous celebrities. So we've got Prince, Whitney Houston, and Marvin Gaye. Wow. Right? And Aretha Franklin, all in the same group. It's crazy. I mean, that's that's a great answer. Ben, I hope you're happy with the answer. Just so you know, uh, I'm going for James Brown uh, because um, I think James Brown could front any band and it'd be watchable. And one of the hardest working men in showbiz. So at least you know you're going to get your money's worth, Howard. Good, good answer. But suffice to say, listeners, we ask and answer all the questions on this podcast, don't we, Dane? Absolutely. Uh, no question is too big, too small, stupid, smart or long or short so if you like the show please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode subscribe to us on Acast the world's largest podcast network where you can hear all of the questions and answers with all of our very special guests with that being said on today's show our guest is a beloved TV presenter and podcaster he hosted the Sky One Saturday morning football show Soccer AM for over a decade since 2012 he has co-hosted the much loved Sunday morning show Sunday Brunch with Simon Rimmer of which I've been a guest twice and he has also been the host of his award-winning podcast, The Lovejoy Hour, which is available to download now wherever you can get your good podcasts. Suffice to say, it's Tim Lovejoy. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Welcome. Good. good. How are I, you? When you were asking that question before, right? Yeah. I immediately thought uh, James Brown. And nice. I'm lucky enough that I've seen James Brown. And I saw James Brown at David Beckham's World Cup party. <laughs> and I was telling this story the other day on, I can't remember, one of my podcasts or something, I think, where I was sitting next to David Blaine. He was doing magic tricks. Right? <laughs> what a great situation already. Right? I, had a, I had a wee next to P. Diddy or Puff Daddy, whichever one you're going to call him. And then they started doing the auctions and everything. And then after that, I mean, it was like just like a who's who there of celebrity. And after that, Robbie Williams played and then James Brown played. Robbie Williams, <laughs> I'm laughing because I know what's coming. When, when Robbie Williams played, right, it was it was good. Robbie Williams was there, and it was like a wedding. Do you know what I mean? Because you're a World Cup yeah. party. Then James Brown comes on, right? One, one of the biggest legends that's ever been in music. And a couple of the England players turned to me and went, "He's good, but he's not as good as Robbie Williams, is he?" I once saw James Brown live at the V Festival, which are two things I'm not sure you can put together that easily in your head. The V Festival, which has become quite a, a very mainstream festival now. Yeah. But around the turn of the millennium, I went and saw it and, and he played he played and he was amazing. He was still going strong. The cape, you know the cape, he always had the cape, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah far right. So I feel I feel like a lot of those footballers now would uh, hear other pundits talking about up-and-coming footballers and they'd be like, I was better than that when I was that age. Well, so 
they understand how the, how the whole cycle works. Circle of life, really. Although, what life are we living where Robbie Williams is being compared to James Brown? <laughs> I mean, that is just... Hey. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend Robbie in one sense, which is if you turn, talk of making use of your talent, I think Robbie Williams, much like to make a football equivalent, someone like Ray Parler has, <laughs> has made the, you know, absolutely made the most of their talent and their career, right? He had a phenomenal career, Robbie Williams. Yeah, that is fair to say. However, I would say when you're... Robbie was brilliant on that night. He was. But when you're lining up James Brown against anyone, it's a pretty... You know, it's like yeah. going... It's all like, like going, here's Elvis. It's the same yeah. crap, isn't it's it? Really, it's the same thing, yeah. It's yeah. like... Yeah, even... even even um, To be fair, like, Michael Jackson is kind of based a large part of his showmanship on James Brown as well. So, we just, just, to give you some, just give you some kind of perspective. And I just, I just, I just feel like, you know... Record someone who recorded a song with Nicole Kidman is not really the same. That's how I feel. Nothing against Robbie Williams, but I'm just like you know. I, I must stress, I wasn't suggesting Robbie Williams competes with James Brown. Uh, James Brown is the ultimate performer. I mean, if you watch some of that footage, guys, on you, you can find so much footage of him on YouTube when he was young, right? And he, his dance routines. I mean, some of the dance routines of the singers back in those times were they stand up, right? Like sixty years on, I think. Yeah, I mean, oh, definitely. I mean, a large part of the stuff is based on what they did in those days anyway. And, uh, you know, I would even go so far as to say, you know, maybe the drugs may have been better back then, but, you know, <laughs> you know, the transport wasn't as good. So it took you longer to get places. So there's a lot of driving as well. So, you know, you just have to just be a better physical specimen to be that kind of person in those days, I think. There wasn't there as much body positivity. He still had those moves when he was playing Beckham's party. I tell you, is it was he was just it was just great to see him because he was so close as well. It was like it was like, like being at a wedding and and you know and and there he is playing in front of you. I couldn't believe it. Anyway. I don't know, Tim. If I went to a party like that, I don't think I could have fun at any other wedding after that. To be honest with you, <laughs> <laughs> people, I could be like, I'd be by the urinal. People are like you must be very happy for your sister. Uh, are you P Diddy? Then shut the fuck up. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> hey, I went to yeah. another wedding where uh, Lionel Richie played. That's pretty cool. Oh, That's seriously? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, and um, uh, who did you urinate next to? Well, well <laughs> another footballer in that case, yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. It, was, it was in my football, hanging out in footballers' days. There was a lot of that yeah. going on. There was a lot of money. Yeah, I don't know. Most people, Tim, don't really have conversations about a urinal, but if I were you, I would have long, detailed transcripts of all of the, uh, <laughs> all of the dialogue I had with a flaccid penis in my hand because you've lived quite a life, sir. I used who said it was flaccid? First <laughs> <laughs> fair. Wouldn't blame you there either. We all get stuck in one way or another. So, to be well, fair, I do. I do fake wheeze. Just I just fake urine to go to the urinal just to see who I can talk to. Right. That's, that's exactly. Like, that's much worse, Howard. Yeah. <laughs> Depending yeah, on where be. you are, yeah, it better be. It better be a footballer party or. Um, well, it's probably time for it's probably time for a question, isn't it, Dane? As the uh, format of this show tends to dictate. Absolutely. As our very uh, learned and esteemed guest, Tim, we invite you to ask the first question, which we'd all like to discuss for 15 minutes as some change. Then how to ask a question and uh, we'll do the same. And then, of course, lather, rinse, repeat. Um, I will ask uh, in the final third a question, which we all discuss to yourself. And then uh, we would like to find out as an audience and uh, as a group where we can find out more about your work, your podcasts, and maybe some more of these uh, urine-infused amazing conversations with amazing people. Sound yeah. like a plan? Yeah, great plan, yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. All right. Well, um, you have the floor and uh, we welcome you to ask the first question. Controversial question for my career and what I've done for it. But um, is being a football fan a bad idea? Now, <laughs> I must say, I, wor- <laughs> I worked on Soccer AM for 11 years. And before then, I was obsessed with football. And uh, afterwards, you know, I've gone through a bit because you, you know, when you do something for so for so long, it's sort of just it's embedded in you, and I needed a bit of a break from it. But I keep trying to give up football, and it keeps leaving a bit of a sour taste in my mouth every now and then. And I'm like, I must be there's caveat here, by the way. It's mainly Premier League football I'm talking about, and maybe international. But um, I, I keep trying to give it up, and I keep getting dragged back in. So I started a podcast long ago and it was called disillusion changed to the eight as a down of football because after two weeks of me deciding whether i was disillusioned a football fan or not i thought this is getting really boring so, so I, <laughs> I changed the format but my problem with football is what richard bacon once said to me and he you know, like richard bacon ruined everything he ruined blue peter and he's ruined football 
<laughs> like, like, you know, he, he said to me one day, he goes, you love football, don't you, Tim? I went, yeah. And he goes, it just takes up a lot of time, doesn't it? Oh, my God, does it take up a lot of time. 92 hours to watch a game, right? Yeah, That's- and there's all the, then there's all the reading up on the players and there's all the hype yeah. and everything else. Pre- and post-match analysis and all the like. But, I mean, I'd say, first of all, that's, it still doesn't even dent how much analysis takes place on Super Bowl. Like, the, the, a normal game of American football is supposed to be 80 minutes. But the yeah. entirety of the spectacle between the breaks, re- analysis, referees, punditry, like, the Super Bowl, it's a whole day. It's a weekend. I know, but the NFL, they only play half a dozen games a year, don't they? They only play 10, <laughs> 10 games or something yeah. each a season. It's like hardly any games. So as we go on, we batter them through. And if you play, if you support, you know, Chelsea or Arsenal or City or someone, you've got all European games as well and you've got the cups and everything. Cup runs. Else, you know? I mean, I, I could not, I could not agree with the sentiment of your question more. I think actually this is a, episode 100 and something and... I couldn't. I don't think I've ever agreed with a guest more. It, it, I do not think it is worth it. I tell you what's worth it: being a fan of football. As in, I. I think Dane. I know you have allegiances to Arsenal, mm-hmm. and 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 you know that's all good. But I think you're a fan of football. I don't think you wake yeah. up every morning reading the latest football gossip, and I don't think you know every game score as it's going on as some of us do. No, although it's not hard to find out. This is a thing as well that I find is very strange about the phenomenon of football analysis, even from a civilian perspective, is that you'll see people have very heated exchanges and very, very big kind of in-depth and verbose conversations about football. But for people that are otherwise uninitiated, because football journalism has so much investment into it, you can read the back pages of your most basic tabloid and be caught up in a way that, like, if you were to hold a gun to any human being's head and be like, I want to start an 11 for England, they could think of it because the opportunity to find that information is fine. Now, if you hold the same gun and say, I need to give me 11 members of the cabinet or I kill your family, <laughs> most people, unfortunately, <laughs> will lose their family. So, it, it's you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of stuff externally invested in what is going to be a waste of time. So I, I kind of, yeah, I rebel in terms of the fact that I guess I like football. And I, I for me... I understand because of what I understand what it represents. I understand why mm. it may not be a waste of time. I think there's just a human need for association. But your but your your defining the, the defining difference is this, and I bet Tim will completely get this. If 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 your team lose at the weekend, Dane, it does not ruin your weekend. Whereas football fans, if their team loses, the weekend's fucked. That, some, that's some, a lot. There are some families. The entirety of their fertility cycle is based on how teams perform. Like some women, they oh, they only conceive children when their team reaches the final or the playoff for a uh, for a particular competition, and I just think that can be a waste of time. Yeah, I, and it's because I think I'm aware of how much time it can consume. Like, if you really get stuck into like Ford Super Sunday, you'll start at the, you know at the in the afternoon, but you'll be done by the evening. And then if you intend to like continue once you get down that kind of like football analysis hole, like some people end up, then it's like it's gone so badly. Some people are like it's gone so badly this Sunday. What's happening in the Bundesliga? And then they'll go over to like a secondary team or they'll be like, oh, Jesus Christ, what a terrible Sunday. And they go to La Liga and it's, 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 I, think, I think it's just, it's been such a happy distraction. And they, you know, I think in many ways, football is, is, a, is a form of therapy for a lot of people. They're allowed to have that catharsis on the pitch whereby they're frustrated. And so to them, it's not a waste of time because what would be in the vacuum of that time spent would be having to take responsibility for your own life and changing aspects of your life that don't make you necessarily happy. Or in some cases, having to engage in your own displays of alpha male dominance, which most human beings can't really do nowadays. You can't really go down to the pub and pick a fight with somebody you don't like. You just can use football and play against a rival and project your need to compete with other human beings onto that rather than, you know, doing it yourself. This is where my problem is. We switch off and watch a team play football. However, uh, behind that football team, does football reflect your values, right? So we know that that the most the team with the most money wins. So money rules, and we we know in, we know in this world, you know, especially America, you could you know the more money you have, the more justice you have. It works yeah. like that, and so so this is sort of where that's at. We've got guitar issue, which is a whole other issue to yeah. to, to discuss. We've got the fact that. Uh, we don't show loyalty to anyone because it's only about winning. I'm a Chelsea fan. We got Frank Lampard. It was so exciting. We had him back. He was playing our kids. He got sacked. I mean, Tuchel's come in. He's fantastic. But we've the, the, there's no loyalty in the game. It's like, unless you're winning, get rid of what Roman Abramovich has done has been absolutely incredible. If 
what you're supposed to do is just win things. But if you're yeah. supposed to, if you, if there's more to support your club than just winning things, it's it's not as great. Then you've got to look at the history of all the owners of all the big clubs, and you've got to think, hold on, where's all that money come from? I support the football clubs are supposed to be a, a heart of the community. I actually support a trophy club, so you know I'm I'm more or less supporting someone's yacht. Do you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> yeah. it's like you yeah, know. yeah, helping someone wash money and sell. What is the thing now? Is that is, and I think the large part of that is because, and I feel like English fans as a collective conscious haven't noticed this. We like a lot of our American contemporaries have now passed from this thing of having teams and grassroots teams, and we're now these are now sports conglomerates. Like when you look at uh, you know, I look. At, I think when Chu Young Park was signed to Arsenal, I mean, I'm, I, I have nothing against him, but that wasn't a signing for me. That's not a signing that really. Or when Michael Owen signed for Stoke, that was a signing because he wanted a competent player to play. It's because a football kit sells for fifty pounds a pop, and they know that Stoke players who are also ensconced with the whole England team will buy a Stoke top because Michael Owen had one, and they want to be able to say that Michael Owen, who was an England national treasure during his career. Played for Stoke. That what's happened is we've gone from being a fan to um to a customer. That but yes, that's exactly. but I'm talking. This is the Premier League. I, I interviewed the, one of the guys who set up AFC Wimbledon the other day, and during the pandemic, that club has done so much for the local community. It's got volunteers all the time. It's still the heart of a community. Who who's the better club, AFC Wimbledon or Manchester City or Manchester United? You know, you decide which one. That one of them's at the heart of the the the, the town and, and wants to do that, and and the other ones. But I tell you what, I try. I, anyone listening to this, you're a football fan. Try and give it up. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's late. We're addicted to this crap. I have so many times gone. Fuck it. Let's just let's just get rid of this. I'm, I'm not doing it anymore. And then I look in the fixtures. It's like it's Chelsea Leeds. Oh, that'd be a good one. That's what it provides for you. It's therapeutic. It's like when you, when you do deal with the frustrations of life and feeling detached from it, for most people, football is the remedy to that. When people are like, politics is shit, I don't understand it, and economics is shit, and I can barely understand it, and I don't have any control over these things. Whereas there is a lot of autonomy people derive from football. You can shout what you want to a footballer, for example. Like Even when it's a discussion about issues like that, it's if you are a, a normal working class English man, you live in the UK, your life isn't going to be remarkable, you have a certain amount of money and access to education throughout your life, being able to reclaim some level of esteem from being able to talk to someone who is clearly your economic and physical superior, like that does a lot for someone's, like, what their ego that helps their ego a lot, and for a lot of people, they need that in their lives. Like, there are people with tattoos of football teams on their skin. That <laughs> football team can change its emblem, then this will have no meaning whatsoever. The thing that always comes to mind for me, and I kind of I've thought about this before, because um, as Day knows, um, and we often bring up my wife on this show, Tim, my long-suffering wife Tara, who has no interest in football and has no interest in it, and I've often I try to explain it to her, and I think the best explanation I've got for her is that it it, it is pretty much a soap opera when you're talking about the premiership, right? You know, and, and, and Cor- Coronation Street and EastEnders are still the most watched TV shows on British television, right? You know, they're in terms of live TV other than football. And, and you know, you take Chelsea. I mean, that, that that's an EastEnders plot what happened to Lampard, isn't it, this season? You know, they got rid of the old hero from the, the, the Vic and, you know, they, it, it, it's, it's, it's the soap opera that never ends. And that, and that surely keeps people hooked. But it used to be entertainment as well as the soap yeah. opera. So like in St. John died recently, Saint and Greaves, if you're old enough to remember that, great show, a funny comedy. You know, you go into fancy football, soccer, M, all these shows, we're all doing entertainment. And, and and I remember being at Sky Sports where everyone was going, Tim, it's the crown jaws, don't fuck with it. And I was like, yeah, but it's still entertainment. You know, we still got to have a yeah. laugh and a joke with it. And exactly. if it wasn't for Mika Richards and uh, Roy Keane at the moment, they're the only ones putting fun in the game. You watch those two and they're at oh, Michael Richards is fantastic the two yeah. of them are brilliant and you, and you watch it and actually in fairness Neville and Carragher sometimes do it on a Monday night where they have to take the mickey out of each yeah. other but that's what it's supposed to be they're supposed because they're players themselves as well they, they, and I think for a lot of them it's the game itself that they focus on I think because football stakeholders have broadened so much because football used to be enjoyed by fans who would go to terraces and watch football and it'd be enjoyed by like you know their families and people and people that played it themselves with Rupert Murdoch creating Sky Football as a phenomenon, you now have stakeholders of people that never really go to football pitches, people that don't really play football, the people that have never really done jumpers and goalposts who are now invested. And so it means that football as a phenomenon has to cater to so many people now. And not that it can't be inclusive, but there are a lot of people who don't really care about football 
as a culture. They care about football as a media phenomenon. I, I'd still stay on the basic human level of being a human who has sat and been at football games live and had emotional, life-affirming moments with members of my family, dead and alive. It is worth being a football fan, Tim. But, who, uh, who do you support? I'm, I'm lucky and I'm fortunate to support Arsenal and to have experienced the great Tony Adams 1998 uh, victory at Highbury in the sun with my father who passed away many years ago and uh, my brothers who were in the other stand. And I'll look back on that uh, time as one of the most memorable moments of my life. And um, in, in that sense, I think uh, all the years of suffering I've had since, although Arsenal have still won quite a lot of FA Cups in the last few years, um, is, you know, um, is ma- made it worth it. Can I just say a couple more things before I, you're trying to move me on, aren't you? And I'm, gonna... <laughs> I'm ready to go to the next question, but you know, you're, you're an experienced right. broadcaster. Hey, Tim, extra time. You're on Fergie time now. Don't you worry. You're on Fergie time now. Oh, I said, he was ending on something really poignant, wasn't he? You know, uh, <laughs> you're, on, you're on Fergie time now, though. And I was like, oh, let's move on. Right, right. A couple of other things before before we go off this. One, when I was at BT Sport, I remember having a chat with some people who were involved in the league, and I said, hey, why? Why don't every team in the league get the same amount of money wherever they finish in the league? And they went, well, because there's no point in them playing if they don't win the most money. And I thought, absolute bollocks. They're playing because the fans want to see their team lift the trophy. And that was a real point point for me. I was like, I'll call me an old hippie. But I think every team should earn exactly the same amount of money. It's ridiculous that Chelsea get more uh, well, especially Man United get more of the TV money, and they if they win the league, they get more money. It's it's ridiculous. How do, how are Burnley supposed to compete? It's just nonsense. So you know, and I think the NBA do that better, don't they? When they do the first draft, all yeah, American, so all American team, sports. Yeah, the team, so much the team that comes last gets the first round draft pick for new players mm. for the next season. The other thing so. is is where football football's mucked up at the moment. It's a, it's a it's a great metaphor for life where everyone wants everything so bloody fair which we yep. want in life. And I get it, but we've now got people drawing all over the screens for the offside. That VAR, absolute <laughs> mess. And I just think... <laughs> but this is what people ask for, Tim. Yeah, so I've just finished here by saying I'm still a football fan, by the way. And, I, and, <laughs> and, and I've got a podcast, The Eight is a Dan of Football. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's right, Tim. Sometimes you get tired. It gets tiring after a while. It does get tired. Yeah. The, get, reason why, <laughs> the reason why it's good to be a football fan is I reckon, uh, Dane, we could talk about this for two or three hours and Howard, we could just... We need to move on, right? Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's, let's do the next question because I'm, 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 I was very excited to, to have Mr. Lovejoy on the show. Not just because I, I, I knew he'd ask a good question, which was a great question, but also because um spent many hungover mornings with you tim over the years like number of friends of mine you know um well not physically sorry allegations very elaborate <laughs> ruse there Howard. creepy guy what a creepy guy <laughs> was a bit of a blur but i don't remember that <laughs> <laughs> no it was it was watching your show uh tim you know you, you and helen you know dane will testify it was a it was a it was a real it's interesting thinking about that in respect to something like TFI Friday, which, you know, has, you know, some positives and negatives looking back on it now. But it had a real place in in in, in TV history. And you guys did, you know, and um, you, you've become, you know, a institution of TV presenting in this country, Tim. And um, I've never got to ask this question. I'm quite passionate about it as a man who makes television. Um, I'm going to ask you guys, who is your favourite your favourites, TV presenter of all time. Um, There's so many great TV presenters. And sometimes I often feel like, you tell me what you think, but some people feel quite transient as though they're passing through presenting. And then obviously 
end up doing other things. Um, but it's, it's such an interesting job. I'm sure you've enjoyed it over the last how many years. It's a, t- it's a tough question, that, because um, it, like, if we're trying to get it down to one individual, I'll, str- I'll struggle with that. However... Oh, well, we can have a few. When I did... I, I've got two things for you. When I did Soccer AM, I remember that one day someone emailed in and said, you're like Tiz was, and you're the new Tiz was. And to me, and then not only did it happen once, it happened 10, 20, 30, and it just, and this is the day before social media, and everyone started saying you're the new Tiz was. And that for me, with Chris Tarrant, Lenny Henry, and Sally James, you know, and Rob Carroll, cheese was it as well? Who was in that? But that lineup there they had on that show was unbelievably good. And it was just that, that sense of nothingness happening on the show. Not, nothing's really happening, just people having fun. And I, and I thoroughly like that. And then the, the next um, selection is one you've just mentioned there. It has to be um, from The Big Breakfast, because I ended up working on The Big Breakfast, and it was Chris Gabby and Paulie Yates. But, but Chris Evans especially, the amount of work that guy did before he actually walked onto the screen. And I learned so much. I only worked with him for about a month, two months, I think, in total. When I got there, he then left um, to do toothbrush and everything else he went on to do. But during those, I, I watched him before every show. He worked so hard. He knew everything. That man was so prepared before he does anything. And that is what made him great. He knew more than everybody else. And that's how I've done my presenting. You know, Dane comes on the show or uh, Sunday brunch. I'll know everything about him and his show before he does it. I'll watch it. So when he talks to me, I know what I'm doing. And I learned all that off Chris Evans. So so a real pro there. That's that that's my selections. Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting time, that that big breakfast, right? Because, you know, they're, they're actually bringing, I think it bringing it back for a, a, a bit this later this year, Channel 4. But did you work on the show, in, on, produ- on the production a bit, were you two? Yeah, I was a researcher there. I got, I just kept writing into them and I got, I managed to get a job as a researcher. And it was, um, it was just a crazy time. TV was mad then because Planet 24 was making that and the word. And, yeah. you know, t- t- it's, weird. it's weird because people are looking back at TV now and going, oh, my God, what's going on? What happened? You know, word got like someone to snog a granny or something once and all that. But and, uh, Yeah, drink a pint of vomit, I remember as well. And I think people forget in the context of the time that Mary Whitehouse had gone away, who was the, the that woman who was, who was trying to stop everyone doing anything. And it was sort of like everybody was – I was told constantly by my bosses, push the boundaries. Everyone was like, push the boundaries, do as much as you can. You know, we, 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 this is the this is the new time. You know, we've got ladettes and we've got lads and we've got drink and we're like, people are going to present drunk. And, you know, it's just mental, but it was always push, 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 push. And now you cringe at a lot of it. But at the time it was, it felt quite exciting to be part of all that, that scene. And, and, and Big Breakfast was, was, was one of the great shows back then who was doing that. Yeah, it really was a powerful show. Dane, do you remember? Are you? I remember it really well. But I think I think Tim brings up a really good point, man. I think especially now, one of the largest conversations you hear about uh, social and digital media is censorship and you know the message it's sending people, how it's creating issues of mental health. And I think the only any different marginal difference between that and TV at that time, I think it's all equally experimental. Some stuff is challenging. Some stuff pushes the envelope. Some stuff is just downright uncomfortable and cringy. Is that? They're just not the same regulatory bodies and we just haven't really seen things crystallise uh, in the same way that television has. But it's, it was a really important time to remember that, you know, TV in many ways was, you know, it was just as varied and multidimensional as what you see on social media. And I think people forget that. I think people are like, you know, we're younger now, we're doing something very different and we're changing aesthetics and we're subverting ideas about, you know, gender and society. And it's like, that's what, you know, media especially and has always kind of attempted to do is be art uh, imitating life. And so... Yeah, I think he did a really good job of that. And like, you know, Chris Evans did like Toothbrush and had his own production company. One of the first presenters I knew that kind of did that. But um, even the point as well is that, you know, Tim said that he does his research. And it's a, it's kind of, in a way, it's a shame because like you said, because you do your research, we're always able to have conversations off of camera. And in some ways, I think it kind of betrays how well uh, versed you are in the guests and kind of the whole paradigm of presenting. So I think a lot of time now, the idea is that is a presenter got good followers? Are they, you know, peppy and engaging? But I think when it comes to that whole paradigm of stimulating conversations as a presenter or as a host, you need that journalistic side if you're going to get your guests to kind of open up. You know, it's one of the reasons I like, you know, why the format of this podcast is the way it is as well is because it's, you know, the idea is that people can leave this with a new dimension to your being and who you are as a person outside of your job title and your status. And I think that's what all good presenters should kind of try and do. Yeah. But then it's been interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, you, you kind of, I, I would say that Tim 
and uh, and Chris Evans and and kind of you know there's there's a lot of people who I would consider kind of classic presenters in the sense that I think that's what they're predominantly known for. And then obviously you know some of you know uh, comedians uh, you know are, are often presenters, and we've got used to that happening now with 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 you know, Ian Sterling, someone who's you know done a lot of presenting over the last few years, and Joel. Which is a natural natural progression, though. But at the same time, because I, I would say it's very hard for me to um, have one favorite presenter, present company included, because uh, I also like Bob Monkhouse. I discovered him when I was at university, and I was I thought he was amazing because I was probably stoned off my face, but still finding him engaging. And I felt it was. And while there's this always this need for a younger generation to be countercultural and to push taboos and stuff, I found it very resp- admirable. And respectful that he could display wit without and still work clean, and I really like that as a comic. And, and you know, my material may not necessarily reflect that, but I always respected the fact that you know Bob Monkhouse would be on a daytime TV oh, show. He smashed still, it. He would smash it. A wry smile, a chuckle here and there to a bunch of university students that I like. Total, off their faces total still, wipeout. You know, we're, we're talking about total wipeout. He was amazing. What 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 people also also forget is that um, before say Jonathan Ross came along. Uh, and Channel 4 happened. There were so few channels. And yeah. to be a presenter, you had to have done the Butlins type. Yeah. You either had a news background or you could sing, dance, do comedy and all that. And then people like Jonathan Ross came along who were just like, I'm just nothing. I'm just going to turn up and make people laugh a bit and just be me. And and he opened the door for people like me to suddenly, and Tiz was and all that sort of stuff came along. And suddenly there was people like me who go, I haven't got any talent. I can be a TV presenter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, before Dane tells us, I mean, you, 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 you'd pick Bob Monkhouse. Would that be a good, a, a good, a good cheer? He lifts me up there. I'd also say, you know, I, but I also like, you know, the uh, the long alumni of TV show hosts that have been in the states, like late night guys like Arsenio Hall, David Letterman, Jay Leno, um, all those guys as well. Um, I think you know Oprah and Trisha Goddard. We've had Trisha Goddard on, on here, and like. Trisha Goddard, it's like for someone like her to have led the life she led and not be in a position whereby she'd be able to match those experiences with those of like guests and stuff would just be a loss to all of humanity. So Trisha Goddard's definitely up there as well. I just want to talk about Helen Chamberlain there very quickly because when I when I I've been working on the Big Breakfast and I got the job on Soccer AM and I turned up and I didn't really know what I was doing and she was such a great presenter and the first thing I wanted to do was sack Helen because I was like why have we got her on this show and then I realised after I mean this is well documented I realised after an hour in her company she knew so much about football and was such a great presenter and people forget that in ninety six where when i did that women were not taken seriously in football uh, yeah exactly yeah. yeah she yeah, was definitely. in the forefront of it and she bossed it she was absolutely, absolutely. Brilliant. and i really do think sky missed out a trick there they should have hailed her as the first woman of football because she they definitely should have done it should have been seamless they should have been seamless for like the alex, alex scott's at all of today like it should have been seamless like yeah. big mistake uh, it's a, it's a... yeah but they should still be using her because like yeah, definitely like all the football managers used to come on and we used to talk to them like on a two-way thing, you know, remember? And they used to all call her love and on a phono and it'd be like, but she would never, you know, she would never get angry about it. She just go, she accepted the fact that they weren't going to take her seriously. But, but you yeah. know, but she kept going and going and going. And I think she, you know, she led the way. I think she was absolutely amazing. And I agree. Football, football players and fans and managers and everyone loved her in the industry. I still do. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, even, and even when you hear guys saying like love and hun, like, you know, obviously these are natural honorifics that can be a part of typical football vernacular or just how some been. And, you know, it was never a point of print. But what was I think was clear is that there was no narrative that could challenge the fact that Helen Chamberlain knew about football. And that was the main and that was the main thing. Like she for all of that, she kind of proved her competence. So if anything, I think I have a number of, of presenters I do like and favorite presenters. But I want to use my answer to this question to be like, big up Helen Chamberlain. Just just. Just up, up Hell's Bells. My presenter that I was going to bring up as in this list of great presenters that we've we've paid respect to was um was Les Dawson, who uh, is a name oh, yeah. <laughs> is a name that many many presenters and I kind of was I was thinking about this the other day and how used to we are seeing a comedian subvert the the nature of a TV show and if anyone ever wants to go back and watch absolute classic television. Uh, Les Dawson hosting Blank D Blank was one of the most anarchic punk punk like activities I've ever witnessed. It is outrageous watching him do that show. I'm sure much of it is inappropriate, but I can tell you what, at the time it was just, he was just the laugh a minute, wasn't he? 
Oh, he was fantastic. Funny, funny man. His, uh, yeah. his daughter is also very funny. Uh, I think I, I, I worked with her um, on a show on ITV too, but I think she was also on, on, on Celebs Go Dating. But I think, yeah. And she, she's as, as aware of how funny she is <laughs> as he is. But um, yeah, she's a very nice girl though as well though. So, um, but yeah, he was great, man. But Chris Evans is definitely up there, I think. Chris Evans definitely for Big Breakfast and then don't forget your toothbrush. I mean, and, yeah, and TFI as well. Like, yeah, some I think some of those... Even some of those innovations, I think he was able to further carve a lane for the whole presenter archetype as a part of the whole entertainment matrix as well. Because he went from being like producer as well as host and stuff. Yeah, he was the rock and roll, wasn't he, of the industry yeah. as well? Because not only did he have three hit shows, he also got on a concord with Richard Branson to sign the deal for Virgin Radio. Do you remember yeah. that? Did, yeah, yeah I remember. And, and he, then he wouldn't turn up for work sometimes. Hmm. And, and I remember, I remember one day they'd booked the Riverside Studios where he did TFI from was was um, was booked out or something. But he he wanted to do an interview with Noel Gallagher, so they arranged to do it from his house instead, like Chris's yeah. house or something. And they just they set it all up and did it. That I mean, everything that guy did was just magical at the time. That feeling you get when you hear the TFI Friday music or, or something. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Some, theme tunes because he was, he was rock and roll back then wasn't it? everyone was just that we forget what a mad time that was at the end of the 90s you yeah know? people were like, still buying records then what the, 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 like the end of the 90s turn of the century was the platinum age for all record sales like that's when records sold more than they'd ever done because you know that was like height of economic prosperity clinton's in power like yeah it was good it was good times up until that point i think it was crazy times my manager my manager's always said to me you don't know it was in those days you'd go and be a runner when they finished filming you could take home a flat screen tv and, yeah. <laughs> she was like she was like working on she was like working on pop world as well she was like she's like the way she tells it she had to like shop to work in like um ski shoes and stuff like that like it was mental yeah, I mean, the back of the '90s, you could do what you want, right? In this, why, why we're actually recording this? I'm only allowed to hang out with six people, and that's outside. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> well, well, I think we've definitely paid homage to some great TV presenters, um, including y- yourself, Tim. Um, but it's probably time for the final question of the show, isn't it, Dane? Absolutely. And I did have a final question planned, but I think a uh, report was published by our government which uh, claims that the, that the United Kingdom is a model to other European countries in terms of its race relations and that race, structural racism does not exist here in the UK. Um, um, so just to check, uh, Tim Lovejoy, uh, by my understanding, you are a uh, straight white male. I am. Q. Now, so I, for one, want to ask you, given, you know, just our time on Earth, and even and also your extensive experience within the world of media, particularly football, which I believe culturally can be the cause and solutions of a lot of problems regarding race in the UK. Um, and it always tends to be a real focal point for discussions on race relations in this country. So I wanted to ask, from your perspective, what do you think the state of race relations are in the UK? And are we a model to Europe? And I'm only asking you because I think when it comes to these narratives, you know, people may seek out someone like myself for a rebuttal. People might go to any other influencer who is from, who forms a part of the historically oppressed demographics in this country. But I'd like to say for a, a gainfully employed straight white man, what do you think? In the same way that like, you know, while I can say I've never visited any deliberate sexual trauma on a woman before, I can't deny that sexism does exist. And, you know, it's been a part of my observable reality, even infinitesimally. It doesn't mean like, you know, I hang out with guys who are misogynist, but I've seen it. doesn't mean I condone it, but I've seen it. So that's the kind of context. But I would say, what do you think? Structural well, race. Is there structural racism in this country? I don't know enough about this subject like you would do. Yeah. But I will, I, if I could move it just nicely onto a bit to football because you mentioned football. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a great way to, to look at it. And I think this is really interesting because we had a, a player at Chelsea called Paul Canaville. If you've ever read his, read his story, oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. it's horrific, right? He was our first black player at Chelsea and he went through so much shit. It was unbelievable. And I tell this story and people don't believe it, but I was a real young kid at, at Chelsea and I was in the pub. I was probably 15 or something uh, in the pub and they would stand at the door of the pub 
and say, you can't leave to go to the game. And you'd be like, why? Because we had to pay, you know, it wasn't all ticket then or season ticket. And you'd go, why? And they'd go, because there's a black player, but they'd say, not in that way, you know, in the mm-hmm. team. And you're not doing it. Eventually, they'd let us out or whatever. But, the, but racism was rife in football matches. Um, I interviewed Don Letts the other day, and we were discussing this because the uh, skidhead movement was very much a black and white thing. It had two, 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 uh, two, goes in it. I can't think of what the right expression is. There was the one in the late 60s, then there was the one that I know with the specials and two-tone, which is what we were all into. But in his documentary, which I, I recommend anyone to watch, it's like black and white kids were getting on together and they were listening to ska and reggae music coming over from uh, Jamaica and, and they were all really into it. And then the far right managed to get their hands on it. And then they would, from, from that, they managed. And I remember going to football matches. I was talking to Don about this the other day. And it was really, it was really, his documentary is brilliant because he's got all these different people discussing it. But it, you get really conflicted as a, as a, as a young kid because you like, you know, you're looking at the, the, your heroes, which are the specials. I've got a poster and I'm just looking at here. And then you've also got people selling the British Bulldog on the way down to Stamford Bridge, which was a, a, like a hardcore. Uh, fascist magazine paper or whatever and so you've got all these sort of different things and you know you know racism happened a lot a lot of lot of football and one of the things i think football's done so well and i've always thought that was about soccer m as well when we did it is suddenly there was like a influx of the black players you had the three degrees Mm -hmm. of west brom which they used to call them you had yeah but then you have viv anderson coming as the first black england player and all those guys i did a great interview with chris kamara the other day as well sorry to keep quoting my podcast but i love it i'm learning so much and that's the great thing about it and i interviewed him and, and we were discussing we were discussing with him about how horrific racism was in football and yeah. you know the stuff that if you listen to him the stuff that people used to say to him in his own team and you can go online and look at interviews he's done which are managers about him and stuff you only have to google his name it is it's terrible and you know he kind of tears up when he talks about it because it was yeah. so yet football seems to be one of the things football and boxing and a bit of cricket seems yeah. to be things which are breaking through and I think really helping with the situation because you look at, you know, your Ian Wrights and all that lot who broke through. Suddenly you're an Arsenal fan and you're white and you're racist. You go, I love Ian Wright. And suddenly it's yeah. sort of, it, it, can, it can make a difference. I'm just going to carry on just very quickly here because there was an incident which happened at Stamford Bridge, which we've, we've had a lot of problems up there, as you know, with mm-hmm. fans doing uh, racist things to um, Sterling. Sterling, yeah, Raheem Sterling and as well. And Raheem Sterling has the balls now, fantastically, because the sport has moved on so much to actually stand up and go, no, that's that's not good enough. You know, yeah. got a lot of the lot of the black players now going, it's not good enough anymore. Yeah. No, we're not doing this. Well, even Wil- Wilfred Zaha now refusing to kneel because he thinks that it's just performative and not really changing uh, changing anything. But but you know, it, it does raise a good point. But that's as uh, I was wanted to ask you because it's like. Normally, football is one of the first things that comes under the lens when we're looking at the issue of race within society. And that's the thing on the one hand is that you, a lot of football fans, because it's almost seen as being a football fan, like a Chelsea fan, for example, is synonymous as being seen as being racist. And yeah. obviously people object to that kind of idea because it's like, you know, we're aware that there would be held racist views, but were those views reflective of this as a football team or reflective of the fact that it's just made up of a demographic from people from the working class of British society? Because on the because on, on by the one by the one by one token, like you said, it, it's uh, football was where you'll see some of the most overt um, demonstrations of racial rhetoric and some of the horrible things that someone like Chris Kamara, even like a John Barnes would have, or you know, a Justin Fashion would have had to endure. But by the same token, football also serves as one of the tools which has bested academia, bested industry in almost forcing people that would held certain views to. Co- to coexist with people from different backgrounds and to have a greater understanding of them. I think, you I know... I think football amazingly reflects society. I think, I think you know, economically, we, you know, the, the disparity between the, the people at the top and the people at the bottom is almost... Football is an exposition of society, isn't it, Dane, in that sense? And like you... I think it's one of the best ones. I think I think it's it's effect it's been it's been massively effective. I think, you know, you could ask your average Chelsea player how aware they would have been of the Ivory Coast before Didier Drogba was there. But you know, it's, it's seeing someone like that will make you go and do the research. You know, it's, you know, anyone who didn't learn when Marcel Desailly was there, for example. But, you know, when you can... So even even when... um, So much to the point where even in a way, the football, not that it, that it should have done, even there's certain aspects of racial rhetoric 
which is almost normalised within football, in that there would be some Chelsea fans when they would hear, you know, John Terry called Anthony Ferdinand a black cunt, they're just being like, it's not racist, it's just calling him because that's how you call people on a football pitch. Now, most people are not aware of the etiquette, but there is an element of that, of how people react within football, where, you know, there is a large part of racial rhetoric, which is a natural part of football's narrative anyway. Like, you know, with fans, for example, if in the same way that, like, I remember when when, uh, David Beckham kicked out against... um, Ronaldo, and he got sent off, um, and then he couldn't take a penalty, and then England went out. Like, it would have been a bad idea to be Portuguese that night, because you know, it's, it's, it's just because you know, football and its collective consciousness thing, and you know, by that same token, whenever you're going to get a formation of a mob, that mob as a collective consciousness is always open to suggestion and can be moved in any kind of way. So it's almost like football could be in the right hands, used to very much ease you know, the burden of race relations and begin the process of being a lot more inclusive, but it's whether people want to use it in the right way or not. But I just wanted to ask you because it's like, you know, you've, just by, for me, the fact that you have referenced instances where you've witnessed racism, for me is enough that, you know, you've, you've seen it with your own eyes. It doesn't necessarily, and it doesn't, that doesn't, that's not indicative that you perpetuate it. That's not indicative that you were fine with it, but you've just seen it. Chelsea asked me to do something not so long ago and I was speaking to their guys and they're good guys, by the way, don't, don't judge them on this. But I said to them, can't we change the story of Chelsea Football Club? You know, it's so easy to do to get someone to be proud of something. And I said, what would I, if you said to me as a, as a football fan at Chelsea, what are you proud of? And I'd say United Nations, United Nations, like, like a Benetton advert. Look at the amount of nations we've had. You mentioned the Ivory Coast there. You've got Marcel Desai, you've got South Americans, you've got Italians, you've got, you know I mean? Like we have had so many different nationalities. And I said, what a great campaign that would be to try and move the Chelsea fans away from the racism which was happening with the uh, Raheem Sterling stuff. And I said, wouldn't it be a great idea that we can embrace everything? And I don't think it's hard to change the story. You know, it's yeah. like, ch- let's change the story of who we are as a football club and and uh, and the fans because it's something we should be celebrating. It's fantastic yeah. that, we, that we've got such a, a myriad. We had a black manager, Rude Hullet, for God's sake. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like, why the, why the hell can't well. we... Why can't we celebrate all all the different nations and nationalities and everything and come together as one? And I reckon, and I, I could be completely wrong here, but I reckon if you started selling that dream into the Chelsea fans, they'd soon start going, I love it. We're the club with all the... Because, you know, it doesn't take long to tell a good story. to change. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't take long to tell a good story. In the same way that, like, you know, there is a generation of Chelsea fans now who the idea of Chelsea not being competitive in the Champions League would be anathema to them. Exactly. But they don't remember when Dennis Wise was the manager. That was not, it wasn't a bit of part of the conversation. So, you know, you know, like there's, there's a lot of players that I realize, you know, even someone like Gianfranco Zola, they, these guys like, and even Rude Hullet came to the team, not when they were at the pinnacle of their, like, you know, their form, but by the same, yeah. So I just, the reason why like I said, the reason I wanted to ask you is because I feel like there's such a stigma now associated with racism that people don't want to acknowledge it because they see it as an entire condemnation of their character and everything they stand for. When people talk about like, you know, you know, it's foolish for me not to acknowledge the privilege and the benefits that have come with me growing up in the United Kingdom. But that doesn't mean that there are not problems with the United Kingdom. But it's how, it's how people choose to identify with that. Because some people think, if I say the UK is racist, that I'm saying every individual and every person with a British passport is racist scum. That's not really the issue there. In the same way that like, you know, we are well aware of the problems with the Catholic Church. This doesn't mean that every Catholic I meet, I'm going to bombard them and, you know, lay this blame or the culpability for that at their door. But at the same time, there is a social responsibility, like there is a climate change that we have to acknowledge it because whether or not you actively participate in it, to ignore it means that you are going to be affected by it in one way or another yourself. What you're honing in on is, is to me, this vital element uh, and we, you know, this podcast will go out in 2021. And I hope in years to come, people might look at it and go, they dealt with some complexities on that show. Dane, you're a man who happened, you know, happy to deal with complexities of conversation. And everything is, you know, excuse yeah. the pun, just zero, too black zero, and white. Or zero and one. Everything like, is binary then, now. It's either zero or one. Yeah. And they come out with this, they come out with this report today. The Tories come out of this report and it's like, how the fuck are you thinking that will handle the complexities of these problems? You know, these are historical problems that go back 
hundreds and hundreds of years that you're not just going to eradicate or kind of put a button on. Yeah, don't worry, BLM. It's we're, we're, we're much better than a lot of European countries. Go and look at those fucking also, European countries. Also, last time I checked, we didn't want to be considered a European country. We had a whole referendum about it. So why are we even talking about them in the first place? I don't know, because last time we're like, we're not even part of them. So if we ask them, they're probably going to be like, those motherfuckers in England, they tried to leave us. So we probably shouldn't ask other European countries how they feel about us right now. But it's like you said, Howard, I think things are very, very um, binary and that it's zero or one. So, for example, we will say if someone's either non-racist, because, I mean, it's, you should be, non, should be non-racist and racist, but in the same way that, like, some people may hold some prejudiced views. Now, those may not be as extreme as racism, but they can be challenged. But I think people are so, like, attached to it. It's like, well, I may have a slight problem with unregulated immigration and I'm proud of my country, but because by holding on to those truths, people are not able to listen to any other narratives then they end up becoming lumped in with this whole race thing because people aren't prepared to have discussions within these two binary two binary concepts. Like, for example, Tim supports Chelsea. So if we're supposed to be like, there's a problem with football and racism in football and, you know, Chelsea's been an example, because you support Chelsea, it's not like, oh, you're racist because you support Chelsea. It's not as simple as that. But it's like being a supporter of Chelsea means you have to be aware that there is an element of racism within Chelsea in the same way that, like, you know, there's been elements of racism from Arsenal as well towards Tottenham. That, that's come from fans as well. So that's why it's like, for me, I can be a fan of football because in some ways, I, the entirety of my being can't just be matched along the side me identifying with a particular football team. Because yeah. on the one hand, I might like Arsenal, but I might like you know the fact that other teams like Tottenham or West Ham are very important as feeder teams for developing English talent, for example. It's horrific, by the way, when you're a, f- a famous Chelsea fan and something racist happens. Uh, I go back to the Raheem Sterling thing because people are angry and so yep. immediately go, Tim Lovejoy. That's the <laughs> and you're like, yeah, they'll go, oh, sorry, why the Tim? Yeah, they'll come to you straight away. And then the club doesn't represent me. My money doesn't pay for anything anymore. It's the TV money. It's not like I'm I'm yeah. I'm sewn up in the club anymore. Can I ask you a question though, Dane? Because this is yeah. this is interesting because you brought it up before. Two, two things. One, what do you think about taking the knee before football now? As you as you as you mentioned uh, earlier, Sahar not wanting to do it anymore. And two, um, the leaving the pitch. If there's racism, which everybody has said is a good idea, when um, Chris Kamara was on my podcast, he said, no, it is a terrible idea. We fought so hard to get on that pitch and be accepted. We shouldn't leave it for anyone. We should stay on the pitch and they should get rid of the fans, not get rid of of us because we've got the right to be on the pitch. Two really interesting things there. And it kind of, because I just assumed it was a great idea to walk off the pitch. Chris was really vocal on that. And then where do you sit on both of those? It's, you know, it's an interesting revelation, actually, because I would have said historically, my response would be, you know, I'd lean definitely towards the latter in that if you experience racism, you should walk off the pitch. But then it's like we said earlier, like, you know, that's a black man who actually played the game. So I have an experience in terms of racism, but the nuance of racism in football is something that Chris Kamara knows better than I do. In the same way that, like, I used to be like, if I saw someone not taking the knee, like in certain, like Burnley and the whole flag thing, I was like, that's disgusting. But then if Wilfred Zaha, again, as a black man who is actually within the system of football and has a primary experience of it, then I can't really challenge his experience because then at least in those cases, they're both black men that have played football. My experience of racism does not trump theirs because they're the ones actually playing football. So I think what really needs to be done is that I think they both have the right. I have always been someone where I'm like, if they're not going to respect you, then you take your business elsewhere. And so walking off the pitch for me as a demonstration, I think is a good idea. If Chris Kamara says it's not necessarily a good idea because he forced them to be on the pitches, I'm not saying that that we should stay remain on the pitches, but I think a large dialogue between, you know, trailblazers like Chris Kamara or, you know, like a uh, John Barnes, I think, you know, there, there needs to be a conversation between them and younger players and a whole open dialogue in terms of these experiences. And I think a unified manifesto amongst black footballers to talk about how they're going to deal with this. Because for me, it's like now because football is not just in the hands of fans and there are stakeholders and conglomerates that are involved in football, black players should be able to leverage that to their uh, advantage. So, for example, while it's okay that they always shouldn't walk off the pitch, I think if you can, I think the issue with these things is always comes down to money and power and all regressive ideology 
are all controlled by people that have money and power. And I think if footballers have that kind of power, if you as a footballer can has have however million followers and you can say to your followers, do not support this if they are racist to myself or my peers or my colleagues, or if they say, I am not going to openly endorse this product until this stadium and club address this issue of racism. I think once you're able to start using that leverage efficiently, then it can work. I don't think necessarily walking off the pitch is always the um, is always going to be the solution. But I think if that's what happens and people listen, then they will, they'll be forced to listen. I think, you know, you look at a French team. You look at the French team, for example. You know, one one of their players was offended. They all walked off. And, you know, that's the leverage. Is comfort, like, you know, and France are characteristically a European team which uses a lot of resources from their former colonies. And as a result, have done very well. You know, they're the World Cup holders and they have a large amount of, like, you know, uh, players from uh, North Africa and from uh, pay francophones. And so if they're able to walk off a pitch and that results in people paying attention to them because they walked off as a team, the coach wasn't able to control them. French Football League wasn't able to control them. The French Footballing Association wasn't able to control them. So they had the leverage of power where they were forced to to listen to them. So if walking off the pitch isn't the uh, solution, Tim, I would say then there has to be a dialogue. I would like to hear from somebody like Chris Kamara what their ideal um, solution would be, response to be. So, like he said, for example, uh, punishing fans. I think that is absolutely correct. I think if you create acts of racism in a world where VAR can tell if you are offside by a blade of grass, we should be able to see if you've said something racist, and your season ticket is cancelled. And I think, I think the then people, I think, I think punitive measures for racial abusers would be the solution. And I think if we need to arrive at the table to have that conversation then there needs to be more demonstration. I, again, I said, I, I don't think anyone, someone like Wilfred Zaha not kneeling is a problem or he doesn't sympathise with the uh, ideology behind Black Lives Matter. I think he is saying, I'm not going to keep kneeling in a performative protest if institutional changes aren't being made. And mm. I can respect that, you know. I can definitely respect that. Especially because when you think about the cynicism behind the whole kneeling thing, the original kneeler, Colin Kaepernick, was not supported when he knelt. In the same way that when people say, well, non-violent protests and blah, blah, blah. Martin Luther King, you shot Martin Luther King in the fucking face. I'd rather protest in a way that's not going to get me shot in the face than protest along the guidelines that make my oppressor or detractor more comfortable. So, you know, with Colin Kaepernick, it's like when he was kneeling, people were so opposed to it. Now they're okay with it. It does seem kind of cynical. So I'd say, you know, for me, I because I do not have a superior experience of racism in football compared to an actual black footballer, I wouldn't question them on how they chose to deal with racism nuanced within the lens of playing football. I, I just get back to the point uh, on this though. It's the stories we tell the fans because if you watch um, the hero worship at Chelsea, I don't want to make Chelsea out to be a racist club because like definitely the playing staff, definitely most most of yeah, the yeah, I've worked with Chelsea as well. They've, they've always and, been great staff. Yeah, great and, and and like the hero worship of uh, Hullet and Didier Drogba and Marcel Desai and you know the list of players is is is, is incredible. Ashley Cole, it's mm. it's there's a few people who like uh, Raheem Sterling, you know, had the experience of and stuff like that. It's a few, but but the you've got to keep telling the right story that this is this is, yeah. this is what, what we want on the pitch. And it all starts with poor old Paul Canaville, who's such a legend in, in our club because he was the one who, who took the brunt of it all. In that case, then it would be, you know, in the same way you had the Luther Blissett stand, there should be like a, maybe a Paul Canaville trust where maybe Chelsea works directly within adjacent black communities to Stamford Bridge in West London. Yeah, he's got his own stuff going. Yeah, yeah, so I think I think that's a large part of it. But I think, I think you're right, Tim. I think football... In terms of, you know, I think like a large amount of the narrative from football stands can be reflective of life. But I think at the same time, because football has been, you know, come out as one of the most progressive tools in allowing for the English collective consciousness to accept multiculturalism, I think that should be utilised a lot more, like you said. What an episode, Dane. That was a, a, a far-reaching episode full of, I mean, a, a, how much did we talk about in that one, Dane? Endless. Loads, man, but it all came back to the beautiful game as much. See, Tim, you're the godfather, mate. The more you try, every time you try to leave, someone pulls you back in. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's, it's answered my question. There's no way I'm... <laughs> There's no way now. No, no, no. I think, you're, I think you are actually a British footballing staple, Tim, whether you uh, are <laughs> or not. You're a part of it now, mate. Part of the pitch itself. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been, uh, been a joy. Pleasure. Thank you. 
Absolutely. And suffice to say, I think most people should know who you are, where they can find you, Tim. But for those who may still be unaware, where can people find out more of your musings, football and otherwise? Uh, just go to Twitter, at Tim Lovejoy, if you want to do that. But my podcast, A to Sedan of Football and um, the Lovejoy Hour. So Love Lovejoy Hour, just talk to loads of different people, find out loads of interesting things. So, uh, yeah, it's all good. Mm. There you go, guys. Uh, some good presenting on the podcast from one of the best that ever did it. Um, Helen, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on here as well. Um, but Tim, thank you so much for being the guest on the podcast. Real most milestone for myself. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll catch up on the other side of lockdown. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Perfect. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTeast. Our guest was Tim Lovejoy. You can follow Tim on Twitter at Tim Lovejoy or on Instagram at Tim Lovejoy underscore official. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at We Are Audio Culture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly, and the ACAST team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.